Hi, I'm Michelle Kelly, editor of Cottage Life magazine. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Cottage Life podcast. In this episode, we catch up with wildlife rehabilitation expert and star of Cottage Life television, Hope Swinimer. Then, we revisit an essay about one particularly wild walk in the woods, and we'll tell you how to get a porcupine quill unstuck from your body in relatively painless fashion. This is the Cottage Life Podcast, where every day is the weekend. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. Some cottage memories I want to keep forever. Like the proud look on my son's face the first time he hooked a fish. Or keeping him up late so he could see all the stars that we never see back in the city. But if I could forget one thing about the cottage, it would be the swarms of mosquitoes. And that's tough to do when you're covered in itchy reminders of every second you spent in shorts. So, to make sure my family and I remember the good stuff, we never forget to use Off Family Care. It repels mosquitoes for up to five hours. And it goes on as a smooth powder instead of an oily, greasy film. So now I can remember the good stuff and forget the mosquitoes. Hope Swinimer is the founder and director of Hope for Wildlife, a charitable wildlife rehabilitation and education organization. Hope and her colleagues are the focus of the TV show Hope for Wildlife, which airs on the Cottage Life channel. Since 1997, the center has rescued, rehabilitated, and released over 40,000 injured and orphaned wild animals representing more than 250 species. Hope is joining us today from her center, located in Seaforth, Nova Scotia, about 40 kilometers east of Halifax, and she'll share her knowledge about interacting with wildlife at the cottage. Thanks for joining us, Hope. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Awesome. So listen, before we get into your advice, which I know you have so much of and and great advice at that, um, I'd love to know a little bit more about who you are and for listeners that don't know you, um, how did you get into wildlife rehabilitation? It's funny because a lot of people think, you know, I planned it and I really didn't. I got this amazing job at Dartmouth Veterinary Hospital in my early 30s. And while working there, I noticed that we get a lot of phone calls about, you know, what do I do? A bird just hit my window or my cat just brought home a squirrel. So, you know, I had to learn the proper answers to these questions. And before you knew it, you know, I was giving out advice and and helping people through their wildlife conflicts. And because I worked at a veterinary hospital, if the animals were injured, thank heavens, my bosses were the best bosses in the world. And they just said, oh, bring it in. We'll give it medical care. So it started off as like 30 or 40 animals a year has now grown into 5,500 animals a year. Wow. I I no longer work at Dartmouth Vet, although it was one of the best jobs of my whole life. But uh, we now have our own veterinary hospital here on site, which which was very much needed. 
Right. Yeah, it's so funny. I was actually just spent a little bit of time this morning going back on the Cottage Life YouTube channel and checking out um, a bunch of your videos uh, that are sort of clips and outtakes from your show from over the years. It's very addictive because it's so happy to watch you, you know, collect the animals, care for them, and then release them. Um, and it made me think there was one I watched of uh, seals that you had um, brought in. There was two seals. One, they had were very close to death when you got them and you nurse them back to health and then there's a, a segment where they're, you're releasing them on the beach and they don't want to say goodbye to you, it seems like. And it made me think, like, do you get attached to the animals and, and isn't it difficult to sort of release a seal into the great big ocean forever and ever? And yes, 100% you get attached. And I really don't think you should be in this line of work if you don't feel the empathy and the caring mm. that comes from nurturing and getting them successfully healthy. But there is so much joy in the release because not only do you see them as a whole critter, like and their, what their life should be like, and that's what you want to them. You want them to have their freedom and to be able to fly free or swim free or, or you know, a fox getting out to the fields and, and doing what he should be doing. So, you know, sometimes it's a little bit sad, um, but always underlying is this, this pure joy. And it's really what, why we do what we do. Yeah. So bittersweet, mm -hmm. I would think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so listen, you know, people who go to the cottage, obviously are so lucky that one of the biggest things that we hear all the time is that cottagers love to be around nature and how nourishing that is. And part of that is interacting with wildlife, sometimes in ways that people aren't exactly comfortable with. And um, I think if you're not an experienced um, person the way that you are, it's sometimes hard to know what's a safe way to interact or how you can tell if an animal needs your help or if you should just leave it alone. I think that's a really big problem for a lot of people. And, and we, we often get questions about that at Cottage Life. So I ask you, is, is there a general rule that cottagers can follow about when to assist an animal in distress and then when to just let nature be alone? Yeah, and there is a lot to learn. And I feel the biggest part of what we do is education. And that to me is the key for bringing about a better relationship between humans and nature. So we get about 30,000 calls a year. And it's one of the hardest jobs at Hopeful Wildlife. And I do a lot of the, the phone answering still mm -hmm. after 25 years. And I love it. And it really is, is about each individual animal and each individual phone call. However, there, there are some fundamental rules. Like I always tell people, you know, it's good to call and check what the proper thing to do is, but each case is so different. Um, but it's, there's a few basic rules that you could learn. And that's my job to get the word out there. Everything from a white-tailed deer fawn, for example, you know, there's, there's the idea that the mom is always with it. And there's nothing could be further from the truth. When mom gives birth, she leaves that fawn totally alone and she only goes in to feed it at dawn and dusk. And people get really worried and think it's orphaned. Um, so we give them some key points to look for. Uh, if that fawn is sitting upright and looks alert and happy, then we know it's probably got a full belly and mom is looking after it. But if it's on its side or if it's making a lot of noise and running around and crying, or if you see an uh, open wound or, or flies buzzing around, obviously there's a reason that we should get involved. So it's that way with most every animal. Um, stand back and watch. You know, if you have a young bird on the ground, stand back and watch. Is mom and dad still flying down to feed it? A lot of people don't realize certain things about nature and a lot can be learned from watching it really closely. 
Yeah. Oh, so okay. You said so much in there that I want to. I want to ask you about. <laughs> I, I, I think the big thing, and we get this question all the time, and I, I can't believe we we constantly print in the magazine, especially like, don't feed the deer, because I think a lot of just what you're saying about the fawn, a lot of cottagers with very good intentions believe that you know feeding them is helping them or that it's harmless to feed them so can you tell us like just once and for all do you feed the deer and why or why not you do not need to right no it causes so many problems i do understand that basic desire to be close to nature and to feel like you're helping it but in all honesty, especially with the white-tailed deer, they have a really complicated digestive system to begin with. So people will often pick apples and carrots and all those things. And of course, the deer love it because it's like candy to them. But mm. too much. It's too much sugar. It's not good for their system. So number one, you're not helping that animal. You're giving it foods that can really upset its digestive system. So you know, the right foods are everything. Um, I mean, there's always an exception to every rule. And I remember 2015, we had a horrible winter with ice and snow so deep that sometimes people were getting a little bit involved, especially with some of the birds that migrated home earlier. Cases like that, that are once in a lifetime that you experience, I have no problem with helping. But in general, 99% of the time, there's no need to feed. Interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people do it. And it's not just what they feed them and not being good for them. But I think it, am I right in thinking, I should say, it trains them to become reliant on you for food? Is that part of the problem? It sure does. And I've read uh, research papers on it. And they say, sometimes the calories that they spend going to this to get this food that's provided, they burn up more calories getting there. The food that they get is not proper. So you're really doing them a big disservice. It it can it can really set them back in a lot of ways. So it's important not to feed them. Okay. If the food is missing, um, so say you go away for a week's vacation and they come looking for it. So they're wasting, again, energy and calories, which is so important in the wild world. Um, so it's really not a good idea to do under any circumstance. Okay. So you heard it here once and for all. Do not feed the deer. Um, that's a good, that's good to know. Okay. Another common one we get, and I'm sure you'll have lots of good stuff about this too, is turtles on the road. There's a, we did an article in the magazine a few years ago about the Kawartha Turtle Trauma Center in Peterborough, Ontario, which does really great work in rehabilitating uh, turtles. They get hit on roadways mostly. So if I'm driving along a country road and there's a turtle in the middle of it, uh, what do I do? Do I stop and try to help it across? Uh, do I just keep going? It's, what do I do? So I recommend pulling over and being very careful not to impede traffic. Your safety is, is very, very important. And it doesn't hurt to scoot that turtle across the road in the direction it's going. Do not turn it around. It, the minute you leave, it's just going to go back and try and cross the road again. Just always scoot it in the direction it's going. And if you had a little broom in your vehicle or something that you could use just to encourage it along. Um, certain turtles you could pick up very carefully and place them on the other side of the road. Um, just get them out of harm's way because we do see a lot of hit by car turtles. The other thing we tell people in our province is, you know, if you come across a turtle that has been hit, you know, get it to a wildlife rehab center as quickly as possible. And, you know, even sometimes we receive turtles in that have passed away. But what we do is we x-ray these turtles and if they have eggs, then we 
we if even if the turtles passed away we can harvest those eggs and wow which is a really a really good thing and yeah that's amazing incubate and hatch and can be released right in the area where the mom was and um and you know that way you're really helping in nova scotia all of our turtles are at risk so every life matters and so we're very very careful to save everyone we can for sure that's remarkable now you said um certain turtles you can uh you can pick up so i think maybe that's key what turtles should you never pick up well the snapping turtle is is a different kind of turtle he's one that he can't pull his form of protection is not to pull his head and legs in and kind of play dead his form of protection is to reach out with his very long neck and very powerful beak and snap at you. So if you pick them up around the middle, like you would maybe, uh, I'm not sure what turtles you have, but a, a wood turtle or an Eastern painted turtle or a Blanding's turtle, if you pick them up around the middle with both hands, that would be fine. But with a snapper, if you did that, he can reach around and actually snap you with his beak. And ah. powerful beak. So we we tend to scoot them along or put our lift up with the tail and put our hand under the very base and move him that way so that you're not going to get hurt. Okay, so key thing about the snapping turtle, you'll know it's a snapper because it has those sort of lumpy spikes along the back of his shell. Is that right? And on his tail? I always sort of think of them as the most prehistoric looking turtle. <laughs> they yeah. look like dinosaurs and they do. They they are usually bigger, at least in our province. Um, we have some very big snappers that, that could do some harm if you're not very, very careful. And uh, so, you know, getting him across with, with a broom or lifting his tail up a bit and putting your hand under under his belly area moving him along that way works really well all right so be careful about the prehistoric turtles okay so i wanted to ask you about birds you know cottagers love birds um and i think this is another common thing where if someone finds uh, a nest on the ground they will think that it's fallen out of a tree and they'll think they should pick it up but then i kind of wonder well if you pick it up doesn't that sort of contaminate it and then the mother will abandon it i i there's all sorts of sort of questions here about this. So what do you recommend to people if they'd find a, a nest on the ground? What you said just has about, has so many little things that bring. <laughs> when you go to do your first mow of your property, make sure you do a really good walkabout first. Because what a lot of people don't realize is there's lots of little critters hiding in the grass. So if it's a little bit higher than normal and it's your first mow of the year, look for little snowshoe hares, rabbits. Uh, look for, there's many, many birds that build their nest on the ground. They're supposed to be there. And you can always tell by the way it's built. You can tell it's been sitting there a long, long time. So do your little walkabout. Make sure you don't mow over anything uh, that nature has left at your doorstep. And you can mow around it and enjoy watching it as the summer progresses. And it is just a myth that human touch will cause the mom to reject the babies. Most birds, not all, but a lot of birds have a really poor sense of smell. So, you know, picking it up and, and if it is a nest that actually fell out of a tree or out of an area, it is okay to pick that up and put it back uh, where, where you think it was. Or if a nestling fell out of a nest, a little tiny baby bird that's probably still pink and really fuzzy, mm -hmm. it's okay to put that bird back in the nest if it doesn't appear injured, if there's no blood on it or no signs of trauma. So... You know, we've always been taught never to touch them. And that really is a myth. But I, I do recommend putting a glove on just because you don't want to put your scent 
on that animal. Right. Just attract predators to it. You don't want to do that. So if you're going to move a wild animal, even a short little distance, pop your gloves on to protect yourself and to protect the animal. Right. Okay. So that's good to know. Next, I always have my eye and I feel like there's so many birds around during the pandemic. So it's, um, it feels like it's more immediate to me to be careful about the birds. So I, I will be using that advice for certain. Um, so Another thing that we hear about a lot, and this is, again, really tricky, is animals that get into your cottage, you know? So say, um, I mean, the big one, of course, is mice, um, but say a squirrel is in the walls or um, there's a porcupine, like, chomping at the joists under your deck, which can happen. And, you know, you don't want, you want to be humane to the animals, but you also don't want your deck to fall down. <laughs> so so what do you, um, what do you recommend as a good way to deter, you know, humanely, if you can? And I really like the fact that you said deter, and that's what we try and educate people never live trap out an animal, especially in the spring and early summer, because you can pretty well guarantee that there's babies. So by trapping that mother out, you've now orphaned those babies. Oh, Always good to deter um, raccoons, for example, that get in your attic. Um, you know, if they're underneath a building or underneath an old barn, I always say, just wait it out. It takes about six to eight weeks as soon as the babies are done nursing, mom will move them along and you'll have all fall and winter to close up that space if you don't want them to come back next year. But when it's in your house, it's kind of a different story. So they do pick, pick dark, quiet places. So simply by placing a radio, they say a bass tone is good and a very good deterrent. And putting a bright light up there, you've now changed that habitat from the exact opposite of what they want. They want dark and quiet. You've made it well lit and a little bit noisy. So you don't need to blast your radio to keep yourself awake at night. But it's enough of a change in the habitat for that mom raccoon to go ahead and move her babies. Um, it can take two to three nights and she'll never do it if she's just given birth. For the first two or three days, those babies are getting that very important colostrum that they need to protect them for the rest of their life. So if she just gave birth, it may take up to a week to get her to move along, but um, that's a good, um, a good method. Now, if it's other types of animals, we, we often recommend for porcupines and groundhogs and such a mixture of castor oil that you get at the drugstore with water and dish detergent. And just put it in a spray bottle, equal parts of each, uh, and you spray that about your property where the animal is going in and out. And it doesn't hurt the environment. People even use it for their garden to keep the deer from eating their garden. And so again, it's not harmful to the animal. They just really hate the taste and smell. So it is a good repellent. It's a way for you, you know, to deal with with the issue. Um, if you're, you know, if you're feeling really uncomfortable with sharing your space. Yeah. So it's funny. Um, I think the thing to to wrap up with here. I mean, you have so much great great tips. Um, but it's interesting because you you keep coming back to the same theme, which is you know try to live with the animals instead of trying to get rid of them and try to respect their lifestyle in a sense and they will maybe help respect yours um it's uh yeah so i think and i think that's probably you know you could say that's one of the big messages of hope for wildlife too is you know help people help children especially connect with nature and not be afraid of it so i guess i i wanted to sort of leave leave with asking you what are some of the best ways that you think cottagers can do that I think, you know, thinking outside the box and educating yourself and not being fearful. Sometimes 
people get really worried when they see certain wildlife. So really educating yourself and learning about each and every species. Create, um, you know, a lot of people enjoy the birds. Feeders aren't the best idea because they can spread disease. So creating a beautiful habitat, lots of natural indigenous bushes and food supply for nature, places for them to hide, just create a beautiful uh, a lawn that's not grass. Make it mm-hmm. a beauty that you don't need to mow and uh, and let nature sort of enjoy it. And that will keep them out of your buildings and that kind of thing too, to a degree. So just embrace it, enjoy it, learn about it, respect it. I love that. And I can say that one of the two, in fact, of the best ways to learn about it is to watch Hope for Wildlife on Cottage Life and to read Cottage Life magazine where we talk about these issues all the time. So Hope, thank you so much for taking time to chat with us and to share all your expertise. It's um, it's you're a special person who has this great connection to the, to the wilderness, and uh, I hope we can foster a little bit of that in our audience as well. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed myself. Hope for Wildlife airs Saturdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Cottage Life. Each issue of Cottage Life magazine includes personal reflections on life at the lake. In our early summer 2019 issue, Giller Award-nominated novelist Lisa Moore contributed an essay about a particularly daring moment she had in the woods. Here's that piece now, read by Garvia Bailey. I'm eight months pregnant, and we are hiking through the woods, not far from the cabin, and come upon a waterfall. We hear the water before we see it. At first, a mild shushing, and as we get closer, a roar. We have to go down a very steep path, and I move slowly. My balance is off because of my belly. Then we are at the edge of the pool. The trees hang over it, and their reflections ripple lime and emerald and yellowish on the surface. Hard, creamy foam hammers between the black boulders above us. When I tilt my head all the way back, the sky is a bright blue, circled by a crown of trees. The sun is hot, and I think about that famous nude Demi Moore pregnancy portrait on the cover of Vanity Fair. I am seized with the idea that I want a portrait with my body like this, big and round with our baby kicking away inside. I want a picture of this, I say to you, eyeing the camera around your neck. I'm not an exhibitionist, I swear, but being pregnant has made me wild. All my senses feel mixed up. I want to put the whole forest in my mouth and swallow it. I can almost hear texture. The rough, lacy lichen doesn't just feel rough. It sounds like the hiss of a freshly poured glass of fizzing pop. Get the camera ready, I shout to be heard over the falls, even though you're right beside me. One quick look towards the barrens above the trees, a panorama scan to make sure we're totally alone. I peel off my blouse and shorts and bathing suit. I am naked. I'm just going to climb on those rocks, I say. I wade through the pool until it's too deep to touch the bottom. 
I climb out on the rocks near the falls, and the mist that shudders down on me is full of tiny rainbows. Wait until I get to the top, I yell. Demi is demure in her photo, hands strategically placed, her hair definitely blown dry by someone who knew what they were doing. She's standing straight and proud, some strategically placed blush to make her high cheekbones even higher. Is she glancing down with some kind of special authority, like a goddess? If I can get up high enough on these rocks, I can glance down too. But Demi wasn't contending with slippery moss. I'm halfway up the cliff and can't go any farther. I'm sort of stuck. It's really slippery. My soaking white hair is hanging in my face, and I'm on my hands and knees, afraid to lift my hand to fix my hair. There's only a very sharp, jagged rock on which to position myself, and I'm going for the languidly lazing on the chaise lounge look, but it isn't working. And you're yelling, get your face in the sun. You're in the shadows. Lean out a little. Into the sun. No, no, turn the other way. Can you put your shoulder a bit forward? That's too much. Lean back. No, farther back and to the right. You're right. That's your left. Okay, hold it. No, you moved. I am trying to yell back. Take the picture. Just take the picture. Hurry up and take it. But I have been seized with contractions of laughter. I am laughing so hard, I am crying, and my big belly is shaking, and I am as full of joy and wildness as I will ever be in my whole life. I am naked and outdoors and in love, and our baby is elbowing me in the ribs. After... I get my clothes back on as fast as I can, which is not very fast, because I'm wet and I can't get the bathing suit back up over my belly. Just as I pull my blouse on, you say, Look. You point with the toe of your shoe, and there, balanced perfectly on a stone, is a potato chip, a single, crisp, potato chip. It's a ripple chip, and it's not soggy. Whoever dropped that chip must have been swimming in the pool just before we arrived and taken the path back up on the opposite side of the falls. Then I see, at the crest of the hill, a flash in the trees above, the wink of sunlight on the windshield of an ATV. You follow my look. They probably didn't see anything, I say. But I secretly think. So what if they did? Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. If you know me, you know I spend a lot of time outdoors. Whether I'm camping with my family or fishing in my top secret spot, there's nowhere I'd rather be than in the wild. But we all have to head home at some point, and I'm pretty sure that the mosquitoes have put a homing device on me.
because sometimes they can be just as annoying in my backyard. So when I'm back in the city, I use the backyard mosquito lamp from off. Whether I'm barbecuing my breakfast or having a backyard dinner with my family, I know I'll be safe from mosquitoes for up to six hours. Which means I may never have to go inside again. Cottage Life is well known for offering our readers little tips and hacks that make life at the lake a little easier. And here's one that you're probably going to need sooner or later. So picture this. You're running around in the forest at your cottage with your kids, lost in their laughter in the warm glow of a midsummer sunset. Then, ouch, you have stepped on something, and it is not just a particularly sharp pine needle. It's the quill of a porcupine. Anyone who's ever stepped on a porcupine quill knows that it's a stubborn thing to remove. And that's because the length of a porcupine's quill is covered in tiny one-way barbs that unhelpfully anchor it in place. And get this, those barbs don't just make it harder to pull the quill out. They also allow it, allow it to torpedo its way deeper into your flesh. For real. So get it out. You may have heard that cutting the end off a quill makes removing it easier, but it actually just makes it harder to grasp, unless you cut it lengthwise. That's because quills are full of tiny little air pockets, and by cutting lengthwise, you deflate them, so you shrink the quill enough to make it easier to remove. Make sure you use a good pair of scissors and snip very carefully, and then pull straight back with pliers. And remember to wear shoes the next time you're running around in the woods, okay? That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe to the Cottage Life podcast for free wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer, just in time for your drive to the lake. This episode is sponsored by our Cottage Life paid subscribers. I want to thank them for making this series possible. For new listeners, I invite you to check out our free email newsletters. Visit cottagelife.com newsletter to sign up. We'd love to hear from you. Post a review or email us at cottagelife.com. To find out more about our magazine, our television shows, and our live events, visit cottagelife.com. This podcast is produced by Catherine Jun and me, Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock.